kids. Amen. Amen. Well, we are, uh, we're glad you're here this morning, and we're going to continue in our series through the book of Romans. And uh, we are on Romans chapter 6 this morning, verses 12 through 14. And we're going to start this morning by reading, though, uh, which I think is important for us as we get into the Word of God together, uh, to read starting in verse 1. So if you would do me a favor this morning and just stand as we read the Word, I want to read Romans chapter 6. We're going to focus in on verses 12 through 14, but let's read together. And uh, Nate probably does not have it up there because I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Um, But if you have your Bibles with you, we'll read together together. Verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here we are in our passage this morning. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the realities that are displayed in this, pas- in this passage for us. And we ask that you, would, that you would open our hearts to your word this morning, that the truth of it would shape us, that the truth of it would transform our hearts, that the truth of it would motivate us 
that it would cause us to understand realities that would then in turn cause us to act in particular ways. We ask that, that the truth of your word would be the foundation blocks of our lives by which we make decisions, by which we, by which we go forward in our daily battle and in our daily lives. Lord, we need you. We need your truth. We need you to change us. We open our hearts to you this morning together. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So here we are in Romans chapter 6, and, and in verses 12 to 14, we see um, these truths and these realities have now driven Paul to talk about um, some moral expressions. And I think it's important to say that, that the reason we read the whole passage from verses 1 through 14 is because of, of this. Only after Paul has a detailed exposition of truth, of, of realities of truth, of who we are in Christ, does he then move in Romans 6 to this moral exhortation. Does that make sense to everybody? So when we read verses 12 through 14, we see this, and, and go there with me in verse 12. We see, let not sin, therefore, reign. And so when you see that word, therefore, what we recognize is Paul is saying, because of what I've already said, I'm going to now exhort you to something. Does that make sense? So I think it's important this morning, especially for those of us who maybe you haven't been here through the Roman series or haven't heard the last couple of weeks, that we see the context of the realities that Paul is talking about, of who we are as Christians. If you are a Christian this morning, there are some realities about who you are that now drive Paul. And only after he describes these realities does he now drive towards a moral exhortation. Uh, here's what I want you to do now, therefore. Does that make sense? And you can't really get into the therefore do this without talking about the why. Is everybody with me? Um, so I think it's important for us to discuss first some realities. Some realities of who we are if you're a Christian this morning in light of what Paul's talking about in Romans 6. You know, he mentions earlier in the chapter this idea of baptism and, and being baptized into Christ and this idea of dying. And so there's some realities here that I think are important in regards to baptism. You notice here is that, you know, Baptist Church, we, we believe in baptism, amen? And we, we, uh, we have baptisms here. How many of you guys enjoy those moments where we, where we have baptisms? right? Uh, when we got married 20 years ago this October, um, I, I bought, uh, I bought, I don't even know if I bought, my parents probably bought, somebody bought uh, <laughs> rings. And this is, actually a, this is actually a different ring than the one I had, but I wore, uh, I wore a very, sorry Sophie, not too expensive gold ring that I eventually gave to my daughter. Um, for about, for about 15 years, and, and I wore it every day uh, to the point, I don't know how many of you guys, how many married guys here recognize this, to the point where, and it's probably because I got fatter over 15 years, it didn't matter if the ring was still on my finger, because if I took it off, there was a permanent indentation. Anybody else there? Permanent indentation in this finger that I wore that ring on. 
And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we didn't buy expensive rings because we didn't have a lot of money. And dudes don't really need expensive rings, right? In fact, this one, I think, is really just built for comfort. It was not pricey. Um, the, the biggest required requirement for me uh, for a wedding ring was comfort fit, right? Anybody with me? I, I wanted something that was comfortable. But bought a wedding ring, wear my wedding ring, not to be ju- judgmental, but some of you dudes that don't wear your wedding ring, a little, a little questionable, you know? Maisie's up there holding his hands. He doesn't have My dad, yeah. I'm going I'm to be judgy. You know, what's going on? <clears throat> you should wear it. You find a wife, you find a good thing. You should let everybody know you're married, right? <clears throat> um, and it's a symbol. Fifteen years after I was married, I sat with my daughter, took her out to eat, and I told her about my relationship with, with her mom and what it meant in the symbolism of it. And I took that ring off and I gave it to her, really uh, because it means so much to me, but also in a hopefully motivational way to say, don't settle for anything less than what God has for you. So I gave her that ring on a necklace with the idea that it would be symbolic for her, and because I wanted a new ring myself too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but really, to, really the, the more important thing was I wanted her to understand how important marriage was, how important um, that relationship is, how, how gospel uh, descriptive your marriage is supposed to be in the way that you serve each other and love each other. And, and as you think of a wedding ring, it's really not, it, it is not what I love. I don't love this ring. I don't love the ring that I gave to Sophia to have symbolically for her as she thinks through her future. But, but it, it, it is that. It's a symbol. It was a recognition. It's symbolic of, of this relationship that I have. And baptism in the same way is, is not what saves you, but it's, a, it's not a means of grace for salvation, but it is a means of grace for sanctification. It's... it's it's a means, it does not save you, but what it does is it symbolically, as you're baptized, um, demonstrates to everybody who would look at you publicly that I am dead to my sin and, and the old man is buried and I have new life in Christ as I'm raised with him. And that's why we do baptism because number one, Jesus commands it. And number two, it demonstrates publicly the symbol that, that God has saved me. And in that salvation, in that reality, I'm dead to sin and I'm now alive to Christ. And I'm a new person. Does that make sense to everybody? That's why baptism is so important. That's why we believe in believer's baptism. Someone who has professed faith goes through this symbolic act that is a means of grace towards sanctification but does not save you. It's important to say. So Paul, talking about this reality, what do we see in the context of what Jesus has done for us about who we are? And as we jump into verse 12, we see this idea that in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions.
the number one, I think, reality that we see from this passage is this idea that we have union with Christ. There's a reality we need to see that Paul's preaching about is that we have union with Christ and we have been brought from death to life because of Jesus. And therefore, because of that reality, it says, let not sin. Therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see, Paul, describing realities of who we are, then begins to say, um, exhort us morally. And the first couple exhortations are in the negative. The first couple exhortations are, let not this. Don't do that. And, and I think it's important for us first to recognize this reality as we get into this. So what are we talking about? We're talking about this reality of sin. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Since the reign of sin, listen to this, since the reign of sin is broken, all attempts on sin's part to recover dominion over our lives can and must be resisted in light of who we are in Christ. Everybody hear that? I want to say it again. Since the reign of sin is broken because of who we are in Jesus, all attempts on sin's part to recover dominion or its mastery over our lives can and must be resisted. The body once ruled by sinful desire must no longer yield to it. That's what Paul's getting at. So Paul starts out Romans 6 by saying, you know, should we sin? What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Listen to this question. Listen to this statement. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so what he's saying is he's, he's saying, you're under grace. You're no longer under the law. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. But, but the idea that because grace abounds where sin is, in the gift of God, this grace abounds where in, in the midst of our sinfulness. The fact that Christ has exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness, and we're no longer judged by our ability to fulfill the law, but we're now judged in Christ. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Is he saying now, now because of that, should sin continue to reign in our bodies? By no means. Of course not. Of course not. You now, because you have a new master, have the ability Positionally, you are, and you also practically have the ability to overcome and resist sin and no longer be your master. Good news? Man, this is, this is not an easy concept to unpack, but, but we, we got to get there because this is powerful truth for, for me this morning. I'll tell you that as I've been reading this and for you. It no longer must, it no longer has dominion. So, so what is the practical reality of this? Think about this with me. You know, when guilt raises up in our lives, because, you know, some of you are saying, okay, sin doesn't have to reign in my house. Sin does not have to reign in my life anymore. But it seems as though it, it's moved in and taken up residence. It seems as though day to day in my daily battle, it's not gone It seems as though it's still there. What is this, what is the human condition factor in our life that's the daily battle, the daily, the daily reality each of us face in in regards to this? 
I know for me, sometimes guilt starts to raise up because sin is still there. Anybody else? And, and what do we do? I know sometimes what we do is guilt raises up. We try to choke it out as we feel shame, as the accuser points at us, as we fall, as, as sin continues to still have a real part or play a real role in our day-to-day lives. When we feel the guilt and the shame of that, we, we try to choke it out by what? Pursuing, pursuing a distraction. We try to choke out the guilt by pursuing immediate gratification, by pursuing a reprieve from the guilt and the shame, by going after things that create this immediate reprieve. And in essence, when guilt comes, we try to choke it out by pursuing more sin. I mean, think about it in so many practical ways, from food to the reality of widespread pandemic porn addiction in our society, the pursuit and the addiction of of entertainment in our lives, the pursuit of so much temporary reprieve from guilt. Sometimes our response is, I feel guilty, I want to feel better about the fact that I feel shame and that I feel guilt and the most immediate reprieve from my guilt and my shame is to pursue more sin so I have temporal pleasure and then it just gets a loudspeaker and continues to grow and grow and grow and create more guilt and shame in our lives, right? And that is really the reality for those who are living in a way that you are still enslaved to sin. What we see here is two realities. There's a dichotomy in this passage. You either serve, and, and it's going to go on, and I don't want to take Levi's thunder for next week, but it, but it says it in verse 7. There's this idea of enslavement, and you either serve sin or you serve God. Those are the, that's the dichotomy. Those are the two realities reflected in this passage. You're, even, you're either presenting your body or yourself to, to sin as your master, or you and I are presenting our bodies or ourselves to God as our master. And so you serve one or you serve the other. There's really no in-between. There's no gray. And, and you see those enslaved to sin continue to live in this cycle of sin that grows and grows and grows. And, and, and in an in a effort to get reprieve, we pursue more sin instead of pursuing God. I, I always think back to that bank robbery in 1973 where four people were held captive for six days in Stockholm, Sweden. And, and from that developed this idea of Stockholm Syndrome. Anybody ever heard of that before? When they were tortured and abused and when they were finally released... They would not cooperate with authorities to testify against their captors because there was some weird psychological um, uh, attachment to the people who had kidnapped them and abused them. It's become uh, a little bit of a household name, this idea of Stockholm Syndrome, and we see it, um, we see it uh, as a prosecutor. I've, I've been a child abuse prosecutor for 11 years, and uh, 
we see it in child abuse cases. We see it in kidnapping cases. Uh, remember Elizabeth Smart? Remember the Elizabeth Smart case? Uh, the young, beautiful girl who was kidnapped from her, from her bedroom in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was taken up into the mountains, and she was uh, kept really as a domestic sex slave for nine months. And uh, there were moments where they would dress her in robes and take her out. They would take her out with them. This was a couple, a man and a woman. And they would take her out with them in the public. And people remember, remember people, when you heard her story on the news, you were thinking, why didn't she cry out? Why didn't she say, help, I'm Elizabeth Smart. Everybody had been looking for Elizabeth Smart for nine months. All she had to do was pull off the face covering and be, it's me, it's me. And, and, and she would have been immediately rescued, immediately freed from the bondage that she was in for nine months. But if you hear her talk about it as an adult, she travels and speaks about her story. She wrote a, an amazing book about it. Um, there was a strange uh, psychological hold that changed her reality where uh, there, was, there was fear, there was abuse, there was different things that caused her psychologically to stay, in essence, with her captors. We, uh, we have... Uh, For the last 11 years, I've worked on several trafficking cases. And I'll never forget a, a young girl, beautiful young girl, 16 years old, who I sat and interviewed for hours. She still had the markings on her neck from her abuser and from the man who was forcing her into uh, the life she was in. And... Uh, sat with her and she cried and I cried and we talked and I interviewed her and I, and I tried so hard to, to build a rapport with her and to, to build enough of a relational bridge with her that she would tell me who it was, that she would tell me what was happening, tell me who was doing this to her. I could never overcome the hold that this man had on her. Um, what, a, what, a, what a strangely powerful thing that is. And, and, and when I think of this passage, I think of that reality of sin in our life, where we're, we're justified, we're, we're, uh, we're given Christ's righteousness, we're set free by the, from the power of sin and death, from the dominion of sin, meaning the master of sin in our lives, and, and somehow we keep scrambling back to the old slave master that abuses and hurts us, and we keep going back to these Jeremiah 2 cisterns of dirt instead of cisterns of living water. We keep going back to what, what is familiar. We keep dri being driven towards what's hurting us. And what Paul is saying is, recognize who you are in Christ. Recognize this new reality and begin to live into it. Begin to submit your life to the master who loves you and has life. Like in John 4 as he sat with the woman at the well. Life where you would drink from this water of life and never thirst again. Amen? The power of sin is dead. So therefore, let it not reign in your Life, let it not reign in your body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
What's another reality that we see here? Number two, we see newness of life. We have union with Christ, and because of our union with Christ, we have newness of life. We see in this passage that, that we are dead to sin, and we are now new. We have newness of life in Christ. We, we are raised to life in Christ. We are alive in Christ, dead to sin and alive to Christ. You are a new crea- creation, amen? You're a new creature. You're a new creation. I moved home in 2006 from Boston. We moved home as a family. And, and, and I, we moved back to Baldwinsville, where I had grown up my whole life. And I remember driving around. And when you drive around where you grew up and did stupid stuff as a young person, do you not begin to see things that you remember? There's that house where we had that party and I did that stupid thing. I remember pulling up the first time when, when one of my kids was going to Durgy Junior High School and dropping him off at Durgy Junior High School and looking back into a field behind Durgy Junior High School and thinking, I remember when I got in a fight there and uh, just was stupid and hurt somebody. And, and I remember thinking to myself, if that, if that young man thinks of my name today, he's probably filled with rage, probably filled with anger about what I did to him. You know, I, I, I drive by homes as I take my kids to their friends' houses in neighborhoods like Radisson or other areas, and I think of just, just things that I did. And, and I, I, I've been in moments where I've been coming to a place where I'm coming to preach the gospel, and I've thought to myself, if they only knew. If they only knew what I did in that situation, if they only knew what I did here, if they only knew where I fell here, they could, you know, what would they think of me? What would someone think of of the kind of person I am or the kind of person I was? And I need to come to passages like this and realize that that Jeremy is dead. He's dead. And I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I have been justified, not by my own works, not by my own effort, but because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did. Amen? I have to live into that reality. I have to recognize that foundational truth in my life. We've said this before. Who can accuse me? What courtroom would they go to? What judge would they come before when God has declared me justified because of Jesus? Amen? And because of that new reality, have newness of life. When guilt raises up in my life, I can recognize that I don't have to let sin reign. I don't have to do that anymore. So let not sin reign in your life. Let not guilt reign in your life because of Jesus, because of this reality. So what do we do? If we don't do that, we present ourselves to God. That's what the word of God says. We present ourselves to God. So let not sin reign in your life. That's what you don't do. What do you do? Well, secondly, you don't present your members or your instruments to sin, to be used for unrighteousness. Now, that that not only has to do with your, your members, where it says that, it not only has to do with your physical limbs, but it has to do with your faculties, your powers of reasoning, your imagination, your ambition, your, the desire of your eye, the, the places your feet 
You make choices for your feet to go to the places of your choice. Your hands as expressions of your abilities and your energies and your influence on others. Your heart with its capacity to love. Money as an extension of your power. All of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. Really the picture of do not present your members to sin is is the picture of a soldier where it says to present your members or your instrument to God. In the alternative, in this passage, it's the picture of a soldier that, that presents his arms, the presentation of arms in the military, to say this weapon, this my body is a weapon, this physical weapon is a weapon. I'm presenting it to a higher commanding officer or general to be used in the fight. That's what this is a picture of. So what's Paul saying? In light of these realities... In light of your union with Christ, in light of your new life and your deadness to sin, instead of presenting your body and your instruments, your faculties, your mind, your heart, your ability, your limbs, instead of presenting it to sin to be used as a slave of sin, what I'm saying is now in the alternative, present yourself to God and present your body, your faculties, your instruments, your weapons, everything you have, your mind, your heart, your soul, your energy, your influence, Present it to God. We see this in Romans 12. He goes on to talk about this idea in Romans 12 that you present your body as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. It's your reasonable service to worship. Amen? So Paul is giving this moral exhortation. Paul sees the secret of sanctification here as the giving of the whole person to God. you got to listen to this for a moment. Because as we think about what the Word of God says about who we are, Paul then describes what we do. And it's important we don't get that backwards. We recognize who we are in Christ because of what Christ has done. There's nothing we bring to the table. There's nothing we add to our salvation. Jesus has saved us, amen? Does everybody understand that? Jesus saved you. God has saved you. It's a sovereign act of God, not by works that what? No one could boast. The righteousness of Christ is attributed to you as a free gift of salvation. Listen, you didn't didn't get saved because you stood up and you walked down an aisle and you said a prayer. Can I tell you that? Everybody's going, what? That's been evangelicalism's lie for a long time. If that was true, that prayer would be some kind of incantation. That is not what it is. You were saved in your seat because God moved on your heart and gave you the ability to respond to him in a way that he saved you. You have not added to it. God did it. Amen? In light of that, your response now is to live into the reality of what God has done for you. Your response then, through the power of the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to God. And you present everything you have to him. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul sees the secret of sanctification as giving the whole person to God. All this to be done, listen to this, as a conscious awareness, as a deliberate expression of our new identity in Christ. 
participation in the resurrection life through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Constant, conscious, deliberate participation in the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's what Paul's talking about. How does this boil down? In that moment, in those moments where you're sitting there with your computer, in those moments where you're sitting there with your wallet, in those moments where you're sitting there in whatever context temptation comes, what God's calling you to do is to consciously and deliberately under the power of the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life, say, I am a slave to God and not a slave to this sin. That's what Paul's talking about. To say, in this moment of temptation, I'm choosing to worship God and I'm not choosing to worship and let my life come over the master or come under the mastery of sin anymore in my life. We all see the examples of where sin reigns and rules and masters lives. Do we not? Some totally give up. Some just live under it, give up, get angry, uh, refuse. They're so angry with themselves that they relationally self-destruct other relationships because they want to reject people so they can control the rejection. And we see what happens when sin masters uh, the life of someone to the point that they give up and they no longer live Uh, in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's saying and what God is saying to us is you're a new creation, you are a new creature, you are forgiven, your righteousness is not your own, it's Jesus's. And in the midst of that reality, choose consciously, intentionally, deliberately to allow God to be your master and no longer sin. Those moments are very real in our lives, are they not? Every day this is a battle. Every day, these are, these are decisions we make. Every day, God gives you resurrection power to overcome. You have a new identity in Christ, and you can participate in resurrection life through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think one of the biggest questions for us is, do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? What is the reality of your identity this morning? Is this not a major issue for people from, from junior high through the rest of their lives? I mean, it's, the, the microchasm of it is junior high and high school, right? Who are you? Like, I'm the sports kid. I'm the nerdy kid. I'm the, uh, I don't know, skater kid. I don't know what it is anymore. I'm sorry. LAUGHTER and, and there's, the, there's, this, there's this development in the lives of a human being where they, they're just searching for identity, right? I was a youth pastor for 10 years in the 90s, okay? So my references are way off. I'd be quoting Tommy Boy today, and the teenagers would be looking at me like, what? Um, but but, but there's, there's, there's a reference. I mean, there, there's a reality of the development of identity in the lives of human beings, and you see it happen. And, and listen, it doesn't change into adulthood, where people begin to attach their identity to things, I'm the sports person. Sports is everything to me. 
Uh, and then later on in life, what do we see? It's vocational. Vocational, this is my identity. This is what I do for a living. This is who I am. Or it's financial. My socioeconomic status has to do with who I am. What car I drive defines who I am. What type of house I have defines who I am. What neighborhood I live in defines who I am. Who do I hang out with defines who I am. Vocationally, my achievements define who I am. And we begin to attach our identity to these things. My marriage or this relationship defines who I am. These friendships and these relationships define who I am. And the reality is that at any moment you can lose any of those things. And the person who has wrapped their identity in those realities, at the moment that they lose it, their life is over. At the moment that they lose it, they're completely lost and they don't know what to do because they've lost everything that they think that they are. And the reality is all of those things can be taken from us as Christians, but the reality of who we are in Christ because of Jesus can never be taken from us. My identity is that Jesus loved me so much that he paid the price for my sin, that he died for me, and he allowed me to, trans- to, to exchange my filthy unrighteousness for his righteousness, and that's who I am. That's who I am. And I can lose my house, I can lose my car, I can lose my family, I can lose my job, I can lose my money, I can lose whatever little bit of athletic ability I have left at 42. I can lose all of it. And that's still who I am. Amen? And if your identity is in anything else, you're never going to live as a slave to God, but you're going to be a slave to that thing which if it's not God, is sin. You guys hear me this morning? And I think what we see here is that as we present ourselves, our whole bodies, like a soldier in the military, presents everything, does he not? I think of those boys at 18, 19, 20 years old storming the beaches at Normandy with the reality in their brains that there's probably a better than 50% chance that in the next several minutes I die a very, very brutal death. Still, when those ramps came down, grabbing their guns and running down the beach. As I look at, this is probably a bad thing to say. Thank God we don't have to do that today because I don't think the kids can do it. (laughs) (laughs) They could. I hope. But it's it's a full body. It's my instruments. My arms, my legs, my mind, my heart, my weapon, everything is, is, is in. It's all in. And that's the, that is the picture. The, the, the words here in this picture in verses 12 to 14 are military. 
And the reality is that if we're going to live into who we are in Christ, if we're going to live into the fact that we have been brought from death to life, that we are in union with Christ, that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ, the reality is, is we have to present our whole bodies, our instruments, our members, our, our heart, our soul, our mind, our legs, our arms, our gifting, everything to God as a living sacrifice. And, and the other reality we have to see here, everybody have to listen, is, is if, if we don't do that, then we are presenting our whole bodies to sin as our master. There's only two possibilities. There's only two possibilities. There is, in response to the gospel, in the reality of who we are in Christ and our identity in him, there is a conscious effort to be made to live a faithful life of worship. Is there not? There's a conscious effort to be made. And Paul describes it here. So we see, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been made, those who have been brought from death to life. Because you've been brought from death to life, present your members to God. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Listen to this last verse. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? For sin will have no dominion over you. It means, it literally means, for sin will no longer be your master. Amen? Sin will no longer be your master. It's such a strange reality that we face as believers because the realities of sin in our lives really do sometimes bring that temporal pleasure, bring that temporal fix, bring that quick, I feel a little bit better right now. But as we engage in those things, what does it do? It becomes literally the driving destructive force in our lives. Is this not true? I mean, let's just think about the realities of it for a minute. The quick high you get from seeing that thing you shouldn't see is the thing that's eating your soul and destroying you. The, the, you know, the quick... You know, for me, sometimes, I think the, the clearest picture of this is food, right? I mean, we, for me, I will feel better if there is a glazed and confused donut in front of me immediately, right? I mean, with fruity pebbles stuck on top. Um, I will feel better, and, and no offense, Joe, but I, I will feel better with those charcoal wings, and I know they're not good for me. You put a lot of butter in the charcoal wings. <laughs> but the reality is, the temporal, quick distraction in pursuit of those things to feel better only destroys and makes us feel worse. In presenting ourselves to God, is really what brings ultimate joy, satisfaction, and life, living water to our lives. 
It is truly what satisfies. It really is that picture And I know we've talked about this before. It really is the truth of that picture that is the thesis for the whole Psalter in Psalm 1. It is the picture of that tree. If I was to ever get a tattoo, which I never would because I do not enjoy pain for the purposes of fashion. But if I was to ever going to get a tattoo, it would be the picture of that tree with the roots driven down into the riverbank underneath into that stream of living water. Because it is, it is the picture of wind, rain, heat, difficulty, tragedy, uh, trials, tribulation, beating against the tree. The leaves fall. The leaves wither. Uh, it looks dead sometimes. It looks alive sometimes. And it's not the temporal things on the outside that, that, that really could hurt the tree. Because deep down underneath, the tree's got its roots dug into the word of God, which is what the picture, the gospel, the whole counsel of God, which is what Psalm, ta- Psalm 1 is talking about. Its roots are dug deep down into that thing underneath that gives it life, amen? And in our pursuit, in our pursuit of sin and temporal satisfaction, that, that, that stuff does not satisfy, but true joy comes to the life of a believer who's who's got something going on down underneath. Does that make sense? Something going on down where nobody sees, right? (laughs) It's not about the appearance or how you look on the outside to everybody else that really is doing it. What's happening is what's going on down underneath where nobody sees underground? What is your life driven into? What are you really presenting your life relying on with the weight of your body in your life and your decisions what are you resting it all on what is supporting what you do with your life is it temporal stupid stuff that you can come up with in your own mind that makes you feel good in the moment or are you resting the weight of your life on christ because if you're not throwing the weight of your entire life into God and who he is and what he's called you to do and what he's asked of you and and worship of him and the way that you treat others and live, then, then you will not experience what it means to live under the master of the God who loves you. But your experience will be living under the mastery of sin and destruction. That's what Paul's talking about here. Where am I resting the weight of my life. What am I relying on? And, and this, this, this gets so, it gets so practical, this presenting ourselves, either a slave to sin or a slave to God. This presenting of ourselves to God happens in very, very small moments, does it not? It happens in very, very small episodes of our daily battle. You say, how do I do it? Practically, how do I live into this? I think number one, what we have to do is you and I need to spend more time meditating and concentrating on who God says we are so that it sinks down deep into our soul and into our heart. It becomes the focus of our life so that our heart begins to sing with the realities of who God says we are as opposed to what everything else is saying we are. Does that make sense? 
So many of us are so distracted with other motivations and other things and other pursuits. Our affections are drawn so many other places that we are not living in a daily reality of how beautiful Jesus actually is. And, and as the beauty of Christ and what he's done becomes dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and diminishes in our life, the beauty of these other stupid things starts to shine. How do we get to a place where the reality of the beauty of Christ is, is shining in such a way in the, in the heart and in the mind of our lives that our affections are daily drawn to him? You have to get into the word, the living water, the word of God. There needs to be a conscious focusing and meditation on the truth of the scriptures. There needs to be a constant coming together, gathering together, and worshiping God together. Amen? There needs to be consistent participation in the life of the church and of the body of Christ so that we can encourage each other and, and, and focus in on who God says we are. And as we live into the, into the reality of what the Word says, things begin to change. Amen? I tell you what I notice when I don't. Anybody else? When those other things begin to become more beautiful. How else do we do this? Well, as the reality of who God says we are begins to reign in our hearts, as we focus in on the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, we need to be around others that encourage and challenge us. Amen? Some people practically are so isolated that no one can speak into their life in a challenging way. I mean, some people just never allow this in their lives. And so there's really nobody, you know, uh, my friend's grandmother, he always quotes this. His grandmother always said, if you're, if you're inside the frame, it's hard to see the picture, right? If you're inside the frame, it's hard to see the picture. Some of us, have isolated ourselves to a degree so we can live the way we want to live and never give anyone else permission to look at our picture and say, ah, i got to put my finger on that because that's not right. You're letting sin reign in this area and you're not living into what God has for you. I am so grateful for the men and women in my life who, who have spoken to me difficult words that were hard to hear but have been the difference between death and life in my life. And some of those men are in this room. People that can look at me that I've given, uh, opened my life to, that can look at me and, and, and just point to it and speak the word of God, the, 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 the word of life into me and say, hey, you're, not do, you're doing this because you're being selfish or you're doing this because you're, you're, you're pursuing a sinful route and you're not pursuing God in this. <clears throat> the ability to hear that, the ability to, yes, it's first hard to hear. Yes, it first feels offensive. Yes, you first want to react and say, who are you? But if you take a moment and you sit back and you let it sink in and you ask yourself this question, this is a very practical thing. Someone speaks into your life truth and your reaction is anger and you want to get mad at them, just be quiet for a minute. Take a day and ask yourself this one question even if they didn't do it the right way, even if they were a jerk about it. Take a day and ask yourself this question. 
is there any truth in what they're saying to me? Is there anything true about this? And I bet you, if you really get introspective, you're going to go, yep, I think they got a point. There is nobody better at this in my life than my wife, right? Man, can she point out <laughs> some things in me that need to be pointed out? Maybe that's why she married me. You always hear guys say, I married up. You never hear wives say that, right? <laughs> Isn't that true? Dudes are always like, man, did I marry up. Woo! I outkicked my punt coverage. This is unbelievable. I really, ma-. and the wives never say that. They all kind of get together. They're like, yeah, do you see what I married? <laughs> I, I am really working on this. I'm getting them there, you know? <laughs> it's a different perspective. But being open to that is a very, very practical reality. I know it's getting late. Yes, this is a daily battle. Yes, we don't always win this battle from moment to moment. But you, today, in light of the word of God, can live in these truths. You are, if, you, if you are relying on Christ for salvation, you have union with Christ. You are a new creation. You have been brought from death to life. The old man has passed away. All things are new. You positionally are absolutely justified, not because of anything you did, but because of what Christ did. And you have resurrection power to not live as a slave to sin but you have resurrection power every day, every moment to present yourself to God and live as a slave to the greatest master who loves you and cares for you and is the only one who can give you true life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for your word and to the degree we are able to grasp it this morning, I pray that that truth would sink deeply, deeply into our hearts. These are powerful truths that that we would never know about you and about us and about how we relate and about how we're supposed to live. We would never know it apart from you revealing it to us in your word because you're gracious to us and you love us and you want us to know you. We would never know this if it wasn't for Jesus who came and took our bent and broken uh, will that, that, that was so sinful and so wretched and, and died on a cross to pay for all of our sin, who lived a righteous life that now we have been given this righteousness, this position, this resurrection power, this new life in Christ. So this morning, we respond to these realities. We respond to these realities with worship, and we respond to these realities with a pursuit of you instead of a pursuit of sin. We respond to these realities this morning knowing that you give us the power and the ability to pursue you instead of pursuing sin. We respond to these realities this morning 
knowing even in our failure, we stand before you forgiven. That the accuser's words have been silenced by your great words of not guilty because of Jesus. And we say this morning, that is who we are. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.